Now, I am uh, primarily a biologist, and I study what people from Massachusetts often call river herring. Now, there are two, uh, take that one, there are two species of river herring uh, in Massachusetts. Uh, we call them the blueback herring and the alewife, and I study the latter, the alewife. And alewife are native here in Massachusetts, or at least along the coast, and all of New England, and they exhibit a life history that biologists call anadromy. We call them anadromous fish. They spend most of their lives out in the marine environment in salt water, uh, but ultimately move up into freshwater streams to spawn. And ecologically, they are a very important fish. Um, in their long migration runs, alewife serve as food for birds and mammals up and down their spawning streams. And through respiration, uh, they transfer a lot of nutrients between marine and freshwater uh, habitats. And in their spawning lakes, the small young alewife, the young of the year alewife, are great food for sport fish like largemouth bass and chain pickerel. And so they help uh, the, the local fisheries grow trophy fish. Um, but their biggest influence is actually on zooplankton. I don't know how many of you have heard of zooplankton before. Uh, zooplankton are little crustaceans, you can see them depicted there, that swim in all lakes that you're familiar with. Um, alewife decimate zooplankton. Here you see a, a, a graph from a classic paper in ecology of Brooks and Dodson, 1965. And it's a basic histogram with zooplankton size on the x-axis and on the y you just have frequency. Um, and you see that in lakes with alewife, there are very small zooplankton. In lakes without alewife, there are very large zooplankton. So alewife are voracious foragers. Through size selective foraging, they greatly diminish the size of zooplankton in lakes. And the young of year alewife eat themselves out of house and home, uh, especially in their little spawning lakes. And now normally this is okay, because once the food is gone, the alewife just leaves. They migrate back to the ocean. However, sometimes alewife gets stuck in these freshwater lakes and ponds whether it's due to dams from beavers or humans or a stream dries up or something else. We call these alewife landlocked alewife. And the effects of landlocked alewife are a bit different uh, from their anadromous brethren. For example, after the building of the Welland Canal in the 19th and 20th century, alewife made it past Niagara Falls into the Great Lakes and they caused great destruction and devastation. Here you can see them lining the shores, all dead on the uh, seashore. They were so good at eating zooplankton, in fact, uh, that they were a nuisance. They wiped out a bunch of native species, and the government officials had to introduce salmon into the Great Lakes uh, to try to reduce their numbers. And now these little fish support a multi-million dollar fishing industry along the coast of Wisconsin and Michigan, where they are not native. And needless to say, their ecological effect is huge. But their ecological effects are just a very small part of what I study. You see, when alewife gets stuck in fresh water, the population begins to rapidly change. And there have been populations that have changed in less than 50 years. Their body shape changes, their body size changes, their habitat preferences change. 
They change in their foraging morphology. Their mouths and their gill rakers change. Their spawning times change so that even if you were to put the two populations back in the same lake, they likely won't spawn together. They won't interbreed again because uh, they have this, uh, this timing difference. They only spawn rarely when they're back in the same lake. This is a form of reproductive isolation, and it's the first step to becoming a new species. In other words, in the alewife, we see evolutionary change over ecological timescales. The alewife eat themselves out of house and home, and they have nowhere to go, and so those with traits that allow them to handle smaller and smaller food survive and have offspring, and those without those traits die. This is called natural selection. And when organisms change the environment so as to influence their own evolutionary trajectory, like the alewife do, we call it an eco-evolutionary feedback. Alewife change their environment. They wipe out the zooplankton, which changes selection pressures upon themselves and causes adaptive divergence between the two populations. Now, why do I share this? First, I share it because alewife are incredibly culturally and ecologically important to New England. And as New Englanders, at least for a short while, I thought perhaps you'd be interested in uh, one of your native fish. But even more importantly, it's because in my experience, once I start mentioning some of these words, words like natural selection, evolution, eco-evolutionary feedbacks, I often lose a lot of Christians and sometimes Catholics especially when I've shared with audiences that are popular audiences. Uh, many good and faithful Catholics have expressed concern, often handing me pamphlets from the Colby Center or videos from Father Ripperger on the topic. <laughs> and at first, I must admit, uh, some of this reaction did surprise me, if I'm honest. After all, there, there have been no uh, magisterial documents that have condemned evolution by natural selection. In fact, the only major encyclical that addresses it head-on is Humani Generis from Pope Pius XII, in which he allows for its study while warning about bringing evolutionary thinking into philosophy. Likewise, Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis have each been vocal in their support of evolution as the best theory for describing our observations of the natural world. So, why the opposition among the faithful? And I think the reasons are many, it seems to me. Too many to be able to address today, so I, I hope you don't walk away disappointed just because I have to narrow in. But issues like the interpretation of Holy Scripture, the writings of the doctors and fathers of the church, metaphysics and their concerns, and sometimes even associations between specific cultural movements and the rise of evolutionary thinking. All of these and more are used to discount evolution by natural selection as a cause of diversity, of the diversity of life that we see today. But perhaps in my opinion, my humble opinion, the most pervasive issue is the belief that if natural processes can explain the diversity of life on earth, then God becomes small, if not unimportant. If I can explain adaptive divergence in alewife simply through natural explanations, then somehow, I have discovered evidence that God is not as powerful as, he, as I once thought he was. This mindset of natural causes as a threat to Christianity is rooted in particular understandings and assumptions 
about how God relates to the natural world. And this is what I would like to explore a little bit tonight. What does it mean for God to be creator? How is God a cause in the world? What about providence and directionality or teleology and evolution by natural selection? How can one hold on to God as creator and evolution at the same time? And perhaps most important for me is, how do I understand what I'm seeing in the alewife? Does God play a role in their adaptive divergence or evolution? Or do we see landlocked and adermus alewife diverging due to natural causes alone? In my talk tonight, I would like to uh, point out some assumptions about the relationship between God and the world that can lead Catholics to dismiss evolution by natural selection as the explanation for the diversity of life on Earth. And I'd also like to attempt to refute those assumptions uh, by pointing to basic Thomistic principles around creation, the relationship between God and the world, and causality uh, to show that evolution by natural selection does not threaten God as creator, nor evolution's naturalistic mechanism. Now, before jumping in, I'd like to just take a moment to make sure that we're all on the same page regarding what we mean by evolution by natural selection. What is it and how does it function? To do this, I'd like to draw your, oh, that doesn't show up very well, but I'd like you to draw your attention to this graph. Notice on the x-axis, I have your father's height. On the y-axis, we have the total number of children that he has had throughout his lifetime. Now I'd like you to think for a minute, how tall is your father and how many children has he had? And I want you to hold those numbers in your head. Now normally when I teach this uh, at St. Norbert College, I go through each student and they have to put their, their data point on the board. And it's funny because even with usually small sample sizes, we often find a correlation. When looking at data like this, if anything other than a completely flat line emerges, then we have evidence for evolution. Let me say that one more time. If you're looking at this data and it's a big enough population size, if anything other than a completely flat line emerges, then we have evidence of evolution. The slope tells us what direction evolution is moving. For example, if the slope is positive, then over time the population is getting taller. If the slope is negative, then over time the population is getting shorter. If there is a big hump in the middle, then we are witnessing stabilizing selection. And if the data is bimodal, we have two humps, then we are likely looking at disruptive selection. The only case, the only case in which evolution is not occurring is if there is a completely flat line or zero correlation between height and the number of children. And the reason for one type of slope over, over another is likely dependent upon the environment. For example, let's go back to alewife for a second. If you want to migrate between, long between freshwater and, and saltwater, long distances, you likely want to have a really big appetite to make sure you can fatten up before having to make the journey. However, if you're stuck in a small pond where you're going to eat yourself out of house and home, you likely don't want a lot of food. You want to lower your appetite so you don't deplete all of your resources. In one environment, voracious appetite is selected for. In another, uh, 
a lesser appetite is, is uh, selected for. So the slope on the graph is environmentally dependent. Now looking back at height, if you, if you go forward one, uh, we see from this study in 2015 that relatively taller people have more offspring <laughs> than average or shorter than average people. It's also true, you guys get a kick out of that, huh? And, but it's also true that relatively taller people have more offspring than very, very tall people. If you're relatively tall, you're likely to get married younger and have more children than if you are short or super tall. Now, in evolutionary biology, those that have more children relative to the rest of the population are said to have more fitness. That word fitness is something we use in biology. It doesn't mean you're stronger. It doesn't mean you're faster. It doesn't mean that you live longer. All that it means is you had more children than your neighbor. That is fitness. I'm guessing at TAC, you guys have a lot of uh, fit fathers out there. <laughs> so therefore, those with um, those who are reproducing more than their neighbors, their genes will show up uh, more often in the future. So you see this, all we mean when we use the word natural selection is three things, three qualifications. First, there is variation in a trait. Look around this room and see the variation in all of our traits, in hair color, in size, in a whole bunch of different traits. We have all these different traits that vary Second, the trait in question must be heritable, or it's a trait that's passed down between generations. Now, of course, throughout the world, height can be stunted by nutritional deficiencies or certain diseases or other environmental factors. But here, we're not talking about traits that are stunted by environmental factors. We're talking about traits that are caused uh, by genetic determination, um, so which height is one of them. And then third, if there's a non-zero relationship between that trait and reproductive success, you have evolution by natural selection. That's all we mean by it. Variation in a trait. The trait is heritable, and there's a non-zero correlation between the, the two. If those three things are present, evolution is occurring. It's evolution because there is a change in gene frequencies within a population over time usually between generations, and it's natural selection because the change is occurring due to natural causes where individuals with certain traits reproduce more than other individuals without those traits. Now we've already seen, as we see in this study, that in the Netherlands, which is where the 2015 paper comes from, uh, to be relatively tall gives one a fitness advantage. But this likely won't be the case everywhere. Imagine in a different place, isolated from the Netherlands, with a different environmental context, the traits are reversed, the trends are reversed. To be really relatively short gives you a fitness advantage. And don't just look at height, but now also look at all these other traits, all these other axes, uh, such as face shape, foot width, tongue thickness, blood viscosity, and so on and so forth. So let's presume that in one location, it's really advantageous to be tall and another to be short. 
in one to have a thick tongue, in another to have a thin tongue, in one place to have wide feet, and another to have thin feet. Now keep these populations isolated uh, and just let them keep reproducing uh, on their own in their own unique environment and let them do this for millions of years. If we can start to see adaptive divergence between populations of alewife over 50 years to the point of near reproductive isolation, imagine what could happen over millions among all these traits, not just one, all these traits acting at the same time. So that is understanding evolution at a very basic mechanistic level. And of course, much more needs to be discussed, uh, but what emerges from this mechanism is a greater narrative about how life came to be. The diversity of living creatures began with one primitive species that lived more than 3.5 billion years ago, likely a self-reproducing molecule. And from that one species has emerged all the diversity of life. And natural selection is the cause. The same mechanism we pointed to when we were talking about height. This is the standard evolutionary uh, narrative. Now, according to multiple polls, over 98% of biologists hold this position. It is held with the same vigor with which physicists hold uh, their belief in the theory of gravity, and with some good reason. There is a preponderance of evidence from the fo fossil record to vestigial organs to similarity in DNA between species to the diversity of organisms falling along biogeographical lines. All of these together create a web of evidence that makes evolution by natural selection the best theory we have to describe the biodiversity we see on Earth. Now, on the surface, it's easy to see why such a view could be threatening to people who believe in God as creator. If all the diversity that we see today from microbes and elephants, from algae and oak trees, was all brought about by natural causes, we are forced to ask ourselves, what does God really add to this picture? Where does he fit in? As science progresses and makes more and more discoveries, we can easily fall into the trap of thinking that God is getting smaller and smaller with every discovery. And it doesn't help that many of the greatest public-facing proponents of evolution emphasize precisely this point. You've, I'm sure you all know who Richard Dawkins is, uh, the famous Oxford uh, evolutionary biologist, or Jerry Coyne, who is the professor emeritus of the University of Chicago, who is, uh, again, very prolific. They use evolution and other scientific findings as bludgeons against the God-fearing. And these two are not alone in using science this way. This mentality has roots that uh, start with the beginning of the scientific revolution in the 17th century, when activists used science as a weapon against the power of the church, and through the enlightenment of the 18th century, and through the positivist movement of the 19th century up through today. As a result of this development came scientific materialism, also sometimes called scientism. Scientific materialism is the belief that material reality is all that exists or all that is real and that the scientific method is the only way to truth. The other disciplines like theology, philosophy, the arts have nothing to teach us according to these people uh, because they're not reliable. They're not observable. Only the sciences are reliable. 
it is a reductionist view of the world that flattens the metaphysical richness of the ancient and medieval worlds and narrows our understandings of cause and effect. And the effects of this are large because once it is adopted, everything we know gets forced into the paradigm, including God, which leads to distortions. For example, within a scientific materialist framework, causation is limited to observable mechanisms for understanding change. Therefore, when talking about God as a cause, a scientific materialist will immediately think of observable mechanisms of causation. And thus God is forced into a context that is foreign to the way our tradition has understood him. Because if God's causation is real, says the scientific materialist, then it must be observable with our instruments, like other causes are. God, in other words, is just made to be another thing in the universe, which creates a zero-sum game between natural and divine causes. And therefore, with scientific discovery and advancement, God indeed starts to look smaller. And when this impoverished reductionist worldview, when these assumptions about causation leach into the general public and, combine, and is combined with political activism from people like Dawkins and Coyne against God, religion, and the church, it has pretty grave effects. But while faith, public facing scientific materialists with political agendas do not help the Christian faithful embrace scientific findings with open minds, perhaps even more problematic are Christians who acquiesce to this scientific materialistic worldview, especially when they do so unconsciously. Here I am referring to Christian apologists who attempt to refute the scientific materialists by pointing out holes or gaps in scientific findings. And in these gaps, place God. There is a name for this kind of thinking. It is called the God of the gaps theology. This term comes from Friedrich Nietzsche in Thus Spake Zarathustra, in which he says of Christian leaders of the day, into every gap they put their delusion, their stopgap, which they called God. In other words, if I want to defend God from Dawkins and Coyne and the scientific materialists, I just find something that hasn't been explained yet or is explained weakly in their scientific theory. I find that gap and I place God there. Now, a modern day equivalent uh, I think, is intelligent design theory. Proponents of intelligent design, or ideas as they are often called, are not often young earth creationists. Most ideas believe that evolution is a good explanation for the diversity of life on earth. And in fact, most intelligent design proponents would believe what we said earlier about the evolutionary narrative of life. That the diversity of living creatures began with one primitive species that lived more than 3.5 billion years ago. And from that one species has emerged all the diversity of life. They admit that the evidence for this is irrefutable. The point of disagreement with evolution by natural selection is that naturalistic mechanism, natural selection. They think that it cannot explain what evolutionary biologists claim it can. In other words, they point to supposed gaps in evolutionary understanding and suggest, suggest that an intelligent designer, they won't use the term God, is a better explanation than natural selection. 
For example, uh, many uh, ideas often point to a gap in evolutionary thinking called irreducible complexity. Have you heard this term before? Irreducible complexity. The idea here is that there are some organs that are so complex that natural selection could not have led to the final product. The most pronounced in organs, uh, this is most pronounced in organs that require multiple little steps all to be in place for the organ to work properly. We can see an example of this in the flagellum, which you see there, or a little appendage that allows protozoa and many bacteria and sperm to swim or to move. You'll notice when looking at the flagellum, it is like a finely tuned machine. It has over 40 different proteins, uh, different proteins associated with it, and it was argued that no protein would be able to do anything on its own. Each part needs all the others in order for it to work. Charles Darwin noticed this problem himself. He said, if anyone, could, if anyone could demonstrate that any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. The question for us then is, is the flagella such a case? We don't 100% know. In order for natural processes to have produced such a thing, each little part of it should have given a fitness advantage to the organism containing it. In other words, if you had one small protein, you should have more kids than somebody without that little protein and for each successive step. And if we can't figure out how each little part conferred a fitness advantage, we have a real problem on our hands if we want to maintain a naturalistic explanation. Pause and take a notice of the strategy here. There is a gap in evolutionary thinking. The existence of the gap casts doubt on natural explanations. And then, therefore, an intelligent designer, or God, fills that gap. Now, in fairness to intelligent design proponents, many will uh, strongly resist the charge of the God of the Gaps label. For instance, Stephen Meyer claims that intelligent design simply argues that the evidence for an intelligent designer is stronger than the evidence for evolution by natural causes. I'll let you be the judge about whether intelligent design uh, is a type of God of the gap thinking. But either way, the problem with the God of the gap strategy are at least two. Number one, if scientific understanding progresses and the gap is filled with naturalistic explanations, then God, or the intelligent designer, indeed appears smaller. For example, numerous studies have since been published on the origin of the 40 different proteins in the flagellar movement, and have found that proteins can be added and removed and the flagellum still works. There are also numerous speculative papers that have found ways to make sense of the evolution of the flagellum. With these papers and speculations, the gap in evolutionary thinking was made smaller and thus the evidence for the designer became smaller too. But an even bigger problem is number two. God of the gaps thinking gives ground, it seeds ground to a worldview that we as Catholics don't need to hold. The problem with God and the gaps thinking is that it, 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 is, that it is buying into the scientific materialist impoverished worldview. Both the scientific materialist and the God of the gaps apologist share the same assumptions about God. That God is like another thing or force in the world, like any other. 
and therefore that natural and divine causes are, can be in competition with each other. If these assumptions are true, then we fall into even further errors. In order for God to be a cause, he must either continually intervene in the world to keep things going according to his plan, or we have to hold a deist conception of God, a God who starts life off and then backs up, like a winding up a watch, but then sits back and watches it without any interest in his creation. Now, as Catholics, um, we shouldn't feel forced to share in this scientific materialistic worldview. And I don't think that we should cede ground. Instead, we should look back to the metaphysical richness of the Middle Ages to clarify some of these questions. And a good place to start, I think, is the 13th century doctor of the church, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, but before doing that, I'd like to offer a crude analogy uh, to Thomas's thought to hopefully provide some intuitive understanding of his ideas before addressing them directly. For instance, how many of you recognize this? <laughs> Have you read The Lord of the Rings before? If you haven't read The Lord of the Rings, you've at least seen the movies, I'm sure. Um, if you haven't, I'm sorry, because I'm about to spoil something. Um, but there's a point in The Fellowship of the Ring in which Gandalf and his crew are in Moria, and they come across a big demon-like thing called the Balrog. And they run across the narrow bridge of Khazad-dûm to get away from the large demon, but the Balrog is in chase. They can't outrun the thing. So Gandalf the wizard turns around to face the Balrog and famously yells out, you sh cannot pass. <laughs> now as the Balrog steps on the thin bridge, it breaks away and the Balrog falls into the depths. The Balrog's whip catches Gandalf's leg and he takes Gandalf with him. It's a striking scene, one of the high points in the Fellowship of the Ring. But the question for us then is, who made Gandalf fall? Of course, we'd probably say the Balrog did. And you'd be right. But there's another right answer, isn't there? Can't we also say that J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings, made Gandalf fall? I think yes. Both are causes of the event, but in different ways. Do you notice how the Balrog and Tolkien are not competitive causes? Contra the proponents of the God of the Gaps, Tolkien doesn't have to become a character in the story. He doesn't have to go there as a little character to make Gandalf fall. And contra the proponents of scientific materialism, nor does it make sense to say that the only cause is the Balrog. Instead, we can easily say both Tolkien and the Balrog are true causes, without conflict and without competition. I said this is a crude analogy because it is. Uh, it's a crude analogy of this distinction St. Thomas makes between primary and secondary causality. I say it's crude because God does not really act like Tolkien does as an author of a book. And creatures don't really act just like the Balrog does in a character. Like the proponents of the God of the Gaps, St. Thomas believes that God causes things to happen in the world. God influences the world. God acts in our lives too. We see this in scripture from the very first pages of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But God acts in ways that God of the Gap thinking 
doesn't often consider. You see, God, for St. Thomas, is unlike anything else in existence. He is radically different than creation. Instead, God is the act of existence itself. He is the great I am from the story of Moses and the burning bush in Exodus 3. God is existence by nature. And because he is existence by nature, he must be unique. He must be outside of the rest of his creation because if anything else shared God's nature, they too would be God. But there is only one God and only one existence. This makes God totally other. But as we know, other things also exist. I exist. I think you exist. St. Thomas Aquinas College exists. Other things also exist, but they do so by participation and not by nature. In other words, everything that exists depends on God. Again, because God is existence itself. Everything that exists is participating in God. Everything that exists is contingent upon God. Therefore, an alewife doesn't exist by its own power, but only be by participating in God. St. Thomas uh, emphasizes this by quoting uh, St. Augustine. He says, If the ruling power of God were withdrawn from his creatures, their nature would at once cease, and all nature would collapse. In other words, if the alewife were to stop participating in God exi God's existence, it would cease to exist. It would be annihilated. It would disappear. Therefore, in order for anything to exist at all, God must be holding it in existence. And this holding is an act of creation, and it is a true form of causation. This kind of cause is called universal or primary causality, God holding all created things into being. At the same time, St. Thomas says that when God creates, he gives his creatures their own nature and thus the power to act according to that nature. The creature is thus dependent on God for its existence because it must participate in God, but there is also a relative independence of God from God in the sense that creatures have been given their own nature and power to act according to that nature, and thus to be a cause for other things. Notice here that a creature's nature and its power to cause go hand in hand. The creature is not a mere puppet with God moving it from above, or a mere instrument with which God is intervening in the world. The creature does act of its own powers through its own nature. And this ability for a creature to act according to its nature and thus be a cause in the world is called secondary causality. Creatures cannot hold other things into existence as in primary causality, but they can be true secondary causes in the world. I think here the analogy between Tolkien and the Balrog becomes clear, even in its crudeness and poverty. God is a primary cause, in some sense like an author, like Tolkien, who gives the characters his creature's existence. Just as Tolkien is not a character in the Lord of the Rings, neither is God a creature in the universe. But God is also unlike an author in the sense that his creation is active and ongoing because the creature exists only by participation in God's nature. Likewise, the Balrog's influence on Gandalf is an analogy of secondary causation since the author gave its own ability to be the cause within the story. 
But the Balrog is unlike creation in the sense that creation is not just a puppet for God to play with. Instead, creatures have their own nature and the power to act according to that nature and thus be true secondary causes in the world. Notice how the distinction between primary and secondary causality differ from the scientific materialist worldview. With scientific materialism, the world is reduced to observable causes. With primary and secondary causality, there is no such reduction. With scientific materialism, God is forced into a paradigm in which he is just another thing in the universe. With primary, primary and secondary causality, he is totally other from the universe. And with scientific materialism, divine and natural causes are competitive. But with primary and secondary causality, divine and natural causes are complementary. Therefore, with primary and secondary causality, God is freed from being forced to constantly intervene in creation. And if we want to protect natural causes, he is not relegated to sit on the sidelines of creation as with deism either. God is actively involved in creation by holding it in existence and natural causes still shape the diversity of life on earth. Now, if we revisit evolution by natural selection in light of this distinction, uh, it's easy to see how evolution by natural selection ceases to be a threat to God as cause and creator in and of the world. Every atom, every rock, every bacterium, every amoeba, every blue whale, and even the laws of nature are caused by God through primary causes. God holds each in existence by participation in his nature. And yet by virtue of their creatureliness, creatures are true causes in the world too. Thus God does not need to intervene to cause a random genetic mutation. And he does not need to intervene in order for taller humans to have more children than shorter ones. And he does not need to intervene to cause alewife with smaller foraging morphology to reproduce more successfully than alewife with larger feeding morphology. Because these natural mechanisms are not competitive with God as cause or creator. Now, uh, is the distinction that I've, we've just made between primary and secondary causality a rock-solid proof for the truth of evolution by natural selection? Does it mean that we should not challenge scientists on their claims or that we should be quick to listen whenever a scientist speaks? Of course not. These distinctions do not mandate anything. What it does do, however, is free us from feeling forced consciously or unconsciously to acquiesce to the scientific materialist worldview and frees us from seeing naturalistic causes as a threat to God. It also ought to free us from chasing God of the gap arguments, which can easily make God smaller should gaps in our scientific knowledge be filled. Once the assumptions behind God of the gaps arguments are seen and understood, one quickly starts to see them everywhere, including among well-respected, faithful Catholic scientists. God of the gaps thinking is pervasive in our culture. We swim in a sea of scientific materialism, and if we're not careful, even we as faithful can quickly fall to its assumptions. Now, before I conclude, I would like to balance out some of my criticism of the God of the Gaps thinking. Apart from uh, what I perceive to be their errors and some of the damage I believe they have done to the faithful's understanding of God in the world, I firmly believe that the proponents of God of the Gaps and intelligent design have contributed meaningfully to science. 
and to biology in particular. Science works well and it works the best when it is rigorously criticized. By pointing out and highlighting some of the gaps in evolutionary thinking, new research programs have been started and answers have been making those gaps smaller and smaller. As I noted earlier, researchers began studying the flagellum and its evolution more rigorously after intelligent design proponents brought up the concept of irreducible complexity. And even the phrase irreducible complexity is now well known among professional biologists and is in many textbooks. It has led to a greater articulation of the evolutionary worldview. It's also important to remember that sometimes scientific consensus can be wrong. And so it's important that we have strong critics among us. For instance, in 2015, a study in Science Magazine, the most prestigious scientific journal in the world, tried to replicate psychology studies from the past several years. And it shocked the scientific world because it found that around 60% of psychology studies from a prestigious journal were found not to be repeatable. Let me say that again. In 2015, a study in the most prestigious journal in the world found that psychology studies, over 60% were not repeatable. In other words, if you look at a paper and you try to repeat the experiment, it came out with a different result. That is not a good look for science. After all, what gives science its reliability and its is its ability to predict patterns. But here, over half of the studies were not able to do that. To say it another way, if you're ever listening to the radio or scrolling on social media and you hear someone say, a new psychology study from Harvard University says X, Y, or Z, this study suggests that 60% of the time they're wrong. This is crazy. It caused and is causing a crisis, especially in the softer sciences. Of course, with physics, the, the, the more robust sciences, this uh, reliability will be much stronger, uh, much higher. The harder sciences rely on mathematics uh, will be more reliable. But the softer, squishier sciences, including biology, uh, it will be more difficult. So it's important to be sober about what we see in science papers, especially if it's brand new and hasn't been replicated. So just because natural causes don't contradict God, doesn't mean we should be lazy in consuming and holding on to every finding that a scientist points out. Nor should we be lazy in our interpretation of scripture, the fathers and doctors of the church, our metaphysical analysis of scientific claims, and so on. But all of this being said, I find that the distinction between primary and secondary causality can ease our minds about scientific discoveries and their supposed impact on discussions around God. We need not feel that scientific discovery makes God smaller, nor do I think we should be deterred by naturalistic explanations for observable phenomena in the world. We should feel to free to pursue the, pursue the truth. Now in 1893, uh, the encyclical Providentissimus Deus from Pope Leo XIII came out in which he famously said, truth cannot contradict truth. Many years later, Pope John Paul II would echo Leo's words when talking about the findings of the natural sciences, including evolution. As Catholics, we ought to soberly and courageously follow the truth wherever it may lead, both from our tradition and from empirical evidence from the natural world. 
This is why I have no problem looking into the natural causes of adaptive divergence between landlocked and anadromous alewife, or the alewife's evolution by natural selection. Because ultimately, the alewife and their adaptive divergence is caused by God as a primary cause. And this, I believe, studying this, therefore brings me closer to God. Thank you for your attention.